You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Here we are. Thank you on this balmy Melbourne summer's evening. Um, thank you for coming and for braving the rain. Um, it's great to see you here and um, great to be in this beautiful structure. It's the first time I've seen it and it's uh, really, really quite, quite beautiful. Um, my name's Michael. I'm a director from Six Degrees Architects and I'd like to introduce Yulia Hustlehurst also from Six Degrees Architects. She's our um, communication and marketing manager. Uh, we'll, we will be your hosts for this evening. I'd like to begin by firstly acknowledging the uh, traditional custodians of the land on which we are gathering tonight, the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Um, we actually have an acknowledgement that Yulia's daughter, Anouk, wrote, um, and her um, kindergarten group. Unfortunately, they can't be here tonight. Um, but they're, they're words that have really resonated with us in our office and um, I think appropriate for a night like tonight. This is me. These are my friends. Care for this day and care for the next day. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people who are living here first. We want to sing songs for their land. We want to care for nature, for trees and watch the leaves. We want to care for the animals, for water, for Yalok and for Willem. We want to care for the Wurundjeri land. So thank you and welcome. To, sorry, just to um, get started, I thought I would, um, and before we introduce tonight's panel members, I thought I'd just um, set the scene with a few words uh, and discuss briefly tonight's topic, uh, which is the architecture of belonging, finding the pulse of the precinct. Um, at Six Degrees, this idea of belonging and what makes a space feel great uh, has always greatly interest, interested us. We, we started out doing a lot of hospitality work and restaurants and designing laneway bars and things like that. And um, we, we weren't overly preoccupied with, with the look of a space. It was important to us. But overwhelmingly, it was more the feel of the space that, um, that sort of challenged us and, and excited us. Um, we would say, you know, how are you going to feel sitting in that space? Or how are you going to feel as you walk through that entry? Um, so we spent a lot of time observing people and analysing um, their behaviours. And we often found ourselves asking these types of questions. Why is it that there are spaces in the city um, or parts of the city that, that on paper are very similar to other parts of the city, but in reality feel very different? And what is it that makes certain spaces make you feel that you're part of something bigger than yourself, part of the whole, that you belong to it? And so when I'm in De Graves or Pellegrini's or, you know, M Pavilion, um, I'm not just anywhere in the world. I'm without question in Melbourne. And what's going on here? And why does this feel so strong? These uh, questions also tapped 
into some of the lessons that I was taught as a student uh, when I studied under Danish architect Jan Gell. So for those of you who don't know, Jan Gell is like the, uh, the David Attenborough of the architecture world. He's this funny sort of jovial guy who, who's similar to David, spent his life observing um, the natural environment and the built environment. And in particular, he, he paid close attention to the behaviour of people. Um, and he, he really looked at the relationship between things or the life between the buildings, which was his um, seminal book. Um, and so, you know, in honour of his mentor, Jan Jacobs, um, Jan would hold these classes, um, these outdoor classes in the squares of Copenhagen. And we would all be crouched behind trees and hidden away, observing the behaviour of the square. Um, and he would say, oh, look at that person um, walking by the side of the square. Notice the way everyone does that. Um, look, at that look at that woman sitting in the middle. How strange, you know, how peculiar. Um, look at that person up in the window. You know, how does that make you feel? How does it make the square feel? Um, and he seemed obsessed with ledges. He was like, why are there no ledges? I need, I need a ledge to, to rest and, and, you know, take stock. Um, you must go to Italy. The Romans were the best at doing ledges. So I think what we were being taught um, as students was to view the world uh, not, not so much as a collection of standalone objects, but as a complex web of relationships. And this was totally at odds with everything that I'd learned up until the time at architecture school, where it was all about the heroic object. Um, this, this idea of a, a web of relationships really resonated. Um, uh, Jan's Scandinavian approach seemed to be more about the psychology of a space and the relationships between people or our relationships with a building or a street or the environment. Jan used to say that a good building was a bit like a miniature city, allowing for a sequence of events and experiences and joining the cultural dots. Um, and so while we don't have um, at Six Degrees all the answers to these questions, these are the themes we wanted to discuss tonight with our fantastic panel members. How can we better understand the behavioural primal drivers behind people? How can we create a sense of place and belonging unique to its, unique to its location and why is this important? And how can we learn from the First Nations perspective which, unlike Western societies with its human-centric focus, puts country first and ecology bang in the middle. So I'll hand over to Yulia now, who's going to introduce our panel members. Thanks, Mick. Um, I'm very excited about tonight's panel. Very diverse and very interesting people. Um, from very different backgrounds with very different experiences to bring really um, a diversity of angles to tonight. Um, but I think something that they all share is trying to find meaningful connection to places. And they also all share that they do things differently. And their work really has an impact um, because of that, I think. So um, thank you all for coming. And I might start with uh, Dan Honey. <clears throat> Dan is um, Chief Creative Officer at Mulonglo, um, a slightly unconventional uh, property developer. They work both in theory and in practice, um, based in Athens, London and Australia. 
And they really play as the landscape as the protagonist of their developments. And Dan has a really strong um, set of beliefs around the ethics around those developments and, and putting the ecology at the centre and the impact that has on the well-being of people um, and also community in general. And tonight we hear from Dan a little bit about two projects, the Dairy Road project in Canberra and also the walk-up village in Collingwood. So I look forward to that, Dan. Thank you. Um, Sarah Lynn Rees. Sarah barely needs an introduction here at M Pavilion. She, she uh, curates the Black Architecture series and just generally a lot here at M Pavilion. But for those of you who don't know, Sarah's a Palava woman from northeastern Tasmania. And as an Indigenous woman, she really brings a very unique angle and perspective on her role in architecture um, at Jackson, at, at JCBA. And um, she's also leading their Indigenous Advisory, Architecture and Design Services. And I feel you generally demand it everywhere at the moment and your services are incredible <laughs> for the world. So um, thank you for being here tonight and we look forward to hearing from you later. Um, Lee Carmichael. Uh, Lee has worked in the leadership and development team at um, Mona for the last 17 years. He's the founder of Dark Mofo, Mona Foma, and also creative agency Dark Lab. More recently, Lee's worked on In the Hanging Garden Cultural Precinct in Hobart. And we'll hear from him a little bit about this more sort of recent project as well as um, Dark Mofo. Yeah. Um, he's also really... Um, encourage like an advocate for the arts in general and increased participation in the arts and when it comes to having the pulse on the pre uh, you know finding the pulse on the precinct i think lee really is the expert and in <laughs> in like i'm you know, the least qualified uh, on the well panel, but actually. you know you you really have the thing on the pulse like you can transform places uh, communities and put tasmania on the map uh, Congratulations. I, we think it's exciting. So, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming from Hobart as well. So, we look forward to hearing from you. I really need to <coughs> do this properly. Um, Dr. Ian Butterworth, um, you're trained in community psychology. Um, Ian's work really centers around livability, community, um, quality of life, and sustainability. And he creates connections between um, policy makers, citizens, and researchers. Um, he's worked on some really interesting healthy city programs. I won't go through it all, but it involves the UN and the World Health Organization, and you ultimately um, helped start the um, Victorian Livability Research Program led by RIT. And you've really um, spent a lot of time thinking about these ideas around belonging and precincts, and we had some great conversations, so I really look forward to hearing more from you tonight. So, welcome. I think I can and see some blue sky. Really, where? I, you must have a better angle than me because I see rain. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I'll start with you, Dan. Malonglo, as I said, is, seems to be like a developer who really puts the landscape first and not as an afterthought. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your role at Malonglo? and also how you approach a site in general. Big question. Is yeah. that working? 
You can hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming, everyone. It's horrible evening. Um, so uh, my, my work at Molonglo tends to be quite varied. Um, I'm really responsible for sort of setting creative direction, um, and that is across our development, our communications, tenanting, public programs, our publishing endeavours, and then working through the mud to try to get somewhere towards that vision at the end point. Um, day to day, that can be really varied. I was just saying uh, earlier today that my last week has been lobbying uh, council on a project that we're working on in Brunswick, so a bit of diplomacy going on. Um, earlier in the week, I was working with photographers and uh, speaking with tenants about a site that we're working on in Collingwood, so it, it really does change from day to day. <coughs> Second part of the question about landscape. Um, the, the interest for us, I think, in landscape... Um, was a passion that sort of we just began talking about internally and just starting to really appreciate, I think, our native landscapes, which aren't traditionally beautiful. And, you know, you can sort of see looking around these gardens, it's not what we first appreciate. Uh, so we started having a lot of conversations uh, internally uh, about the role of landscape and really thinking that our industry, property development, is not really valuing nature and plants. I think that they're viewed as aesthetic objects that are used to beautify. And it's sort of strange, really. We all understand that plants and nature are completely vital to our existence. And we wonder why then they're not put uh, of primary importance when we develop our cities. Um, so we'd sort of started thinking about these ideas and then in a few years ago, 2019, we held a symposium with about 23, with 23 different people from different backgrounds, really to unpack this idea of landscape and the built environment. Um, that resulted in this book. Uh, and sort of the big idea was around uh, cities being part of nature and not separate from nature. Uh, we often like to think that nature's over there and we live here. Um, and also that buildings could be used as an instrument to defend nature, which I really liked. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's an, at the same time that we're sort of, you know, really getting into these ideas concept conceptually, we, we started working on uh, a project in Rupert Street in Collingwood which is a 2,000 square metre site in, a, in a, a fairly industrial part of Collingwood. Uh, it's pretty much devoid of plants. But when you look at it on the map, it's amazing. It's 800 metres from the banks of the Yarra and it would have once had uh, river views from, from the site. Um, so we started to think a little bit about the pre-colonial landscape and what that would have looked like. and everyone all right? Getting wet? <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we started to think about the pre-colonial landscape and when it came to commissioning that project, we commissioned architect uh, and landscape architect at the same time. And we think that that was, it's not a move that's 
always done. The landscape architect tends to come on later, down the track. Um, but we were sort of sig signalling our commitment that we wanted the landscape and the building to kind of get developed at the same time. And that then resulted in a building that I think sort of took a different form to the normal building you would see uh, in that part of Collingwood. Um, and I could maybe just describe it quickly. It's a, a pair of buildings on the site that are linked by an ascending network of bridges and staircases, which we call the ravine, which we planted with 3,000 3, plants. And so anyone from the street can walk up the building. It's about 12 storeys. Um, up this ascending network, this planted ascending network of bridges and stairs up to a rooftop garden. And it's quite lovely in that the, the planting strategy sort of mimic, mimics a mountain landscape in that uh, down the bottom, sort of ferns, sort of a fern gully, and as you move up the building, it gets drier into grasslands and uh, wildflowers and, and creepers and things that are searching for the sun. Um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this is sort of really touching on a lot of things that we're talking about today, these considerations around landscape and how that makes us feel. And, you know, there's another project that I found really interesting at the moment that you're working on the, in Canberra, um, the Dairy Road project. You call it like a productive refuge. Um, it's very interesting because it's like the Fishwick area in Canberra is quite an industrial side. And I, I sort of wondered like, you know, this industrial heritage, how has that influenced your design and some of those aspects as to how you look at that site and how you treat it? What's the impact on that sense of belonging? How have the residents embraced that? Um, maybe you sort of can run us through a little bit about what it is exactly. Um, and yeah, the considerations around this project. Okay, so uh, Derry Road, it's in Canberra. Um, it's a 15 hectare site. Um, so maybe f about four times the size of the gardens that we're in. So it's quite a, quite a big site. Uh, it is wedged between man-made wetlands um, and then a freeway and an industrial suburb. So it's sort of both ridiculous and also very serious to, to have this bit of land between these two uh, extremes, I guess. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been quite quite an interesting project to think about. We've had the site for uh, about ten years, uh, and it's been the the site is semi-developed in that there are some government. Uh, there were some government-built storage warehouses where government was storing all sorts of shit in there and they're absolutely huge. Um, and then there's an expansive car park, a lot of asphalt, a lot of, asphalt, a lot of cyclone fencing. Um, the site sort of got um, forgotten, forgotten about in Canberra's planning. It sort of developed all around and then there's this weird plot of land that actually took the spoil from when Parliament House was built. So all the, the spoil that was trucked and excavated from there got trucked and dumped on this site. Uh, so it sort of do, it does, yeah, has felt forgotten. Uh, and we've been moving quite slowly uh, with it, waiting to see sort of what, what, will, re what will reveal over, over time. 
Uh, in that time, we've been working on a sort of an adaptive reuse approach with these warehouses. The, the warehouses are not architecturally significant. Uh, they weren't built by anyone special, but they sort of do have their own character and resilience and adaptability. Um, they're massive. And so we've been working uh, on doing some interior kind of interventions and, and adaptive reuse and fitting, that, fitting those out into smaller kind of workspaces and studios. And over time, kind of community of makers have come along. Obviously, th those sorts of spaces uh, were needed um, and they're pretty affordable. Uh, so a, a community of people sort of producing and making have established there. So there's things like breweries, chocolate makers, um, printers, sort of th 3D fabrication, um, and things like that. And now, as a second layer, which has been interesting again, is that sort of indoor recreation and health health services and wellbeing operators have set up in there. So now there's things like there's a vertical ski slope in there. There's rock climbing. There's sort of indoor uh, kids play spaces. There's naturopath yoga studios. And so we kind of have these really nice, it's odd, we have these, you know, you'll see there's a brewery and adjacent to the brewery there's the car wreckers and then there's a kid's play space and next door to that there's someone making chocolate and it just, it, it, it feels really quite strange. And it sort of happened organically but kind of, we built this infrastructure and, and the, the community came that needed it. And that has now informed sort of where we're heading with the next stage of it, which is a bigger redevelopment of the site, which is sort of roughly sp split into uh, housing in the southern part of the site. And we're calling it an industrious neighbourhood uh, in, the, in the northern part of the site. And I think what's lovely about it and what's sort of... It's been happening as we've been going along, but... Uh, really kind of changing the quality of what an industrial place can feel like. Uh, industrial places in our cities are usually pretty bleak. They're pretty ugly. You might expect a couple of, you know, car parking, some curbs, some probably a half-dead tree somewhere, and then um, some buildings that house industrial activity. Um, and in the time that we've been looking after this site, we've sort of been... Tra um, transforming some of the asphalt spaces into gardens and the breezeways bef be between the buildings, um, planting them out with fern gardens and the courtyards that kind of get sun, these sort of inter internal courtyards in the building, sort of creating planted spaces there, uh, creating big cuts in the, in the warehouses so you can kind of see into the activity that's happening inside. And I think it's creating this sort of different f feeling industrial place, which is, I think is quite nice. Um, and so I guess what's happened there for the past 10 years is now informing where we're going with it and the, the future development. So really thinking about the northern part of the site being this in place of industry and really mixed industry, but also having real uh, key kind of public spaces that fulfill different functions. So we're building a working wetlands on the site. Um, and yeah, there's different different type, types of planted environments that kind of weave throughout and, and connect the site. And then the housing, 
feel like I'm really going on. Am I going on? No, no. I find this really interesting. I don't know about you, but I, I actually, it's quite a complex side. What I really love about it too is like how you've kind of really encouraged a genuine diversity in this, um, on this side. You know, you've got all these different entry levels of... Yeah, well, I think, I think affordability and just the flexibility mm. of the spaces have, have been what's have been its success. That's what's yeah. working for the place. And with the future industrious uh, neighbourhood, we're building, working through a plan where we'll see 10 new buildings on the site. And they're, they're pretty massive buildings. I would be scared of buildings that size um, if we were going to do a, de you know, do a development anywhere else. But because we've had the success and we've kind of tested this idea of carving them up and making them more intimate, been able to have quite small spaces in these big sheds and really large spaces that can accommodate, you know, more, more heavy industrial activity, we feel quite confident that it'll be an interesting place. So it, yeah, what's yeah. happened to date has sort of changed, completely changed how we've thought about what it will become. It's also really interesting how that might affect the wider region, you know, like this whole area, who will come in based on what you've started and how these ideas kind of generate their own, a life of their own. Um, yeah, well, I, I, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's 5Ks from the city centre, yeah. 3Ks from the airport. It's got this amazing natural asset, beautiful, next mm. to it. That's um, pretty full of possibility, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, just sort of seeing what's there and making something from it. I'm, I'm really interested in this, like, balance between what is carefully considered, curated, planned, and what's sort of, you know, left a bit open to flexibility, a little bit messy, a bit, um, you know, where spontaneity can sort of unfold and people can do their own thing. Like, how do you, um, you know, manage that? I mean, we're looking at both Dairy Road, but also the walk-up village in Collingwood, like just this, because you're very good at curating, but, you know, when do you let go? Where Do you have this, do you have a thing? Un yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we, we think about our roles as creating the, the infrastructure mm. for the activity and doing that in the most thoughtful and considered and planned way as we can. Mm. So when we're working through architectural projects, they are documented into an inch of their life. Yeah. You know, they're, they're re really resolved. Um, but quite open about how they'll be used. Mm. And also, you know, n not really paring back any kind of interior work, interior work and just mm. keeping that absolutely bare bones so that it could be used in ways that we haven't imagined by people that we haven't met um, so it's a it is a real balance. Yeah, because in a way that's also how you create a sense of belonging by allowing people to make it their own, mm. isn't it? It's like yeah. giving them that creativity and that ownership. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, um, I might um, pass on to Mick. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> well, moving from Canberra, and one mixed-use development, we will move to Hobart. And it, I wanted to discuss this um, precinct that, that Lee has been involved with called the Hanging Garden Precinct. Um, now, the, I'm just going to say a few quick words just to, uh, you know. 
I think this is one of the best pieces of urban design in Australia at the moment, and very few, if any, architects have got their hands on it. It's really come about from Lee and his team in Hobart putting this precinct together, and I would really encourage everyone to get down there and, and check out this precinct. Um, everything we've just talked about with, with your precinct in Canberra, um, it's, it's the same sort of principles. It's messy. I, I really think of it as a... Um, sorry, it's, I'm just going on and on. I'll keep going. It, it's, Go for it. <laughs> it's, I sort of think of it as like this um, medieval city. There's like tight little entries that are like gates. There's a black steel cathedral. There's a beautiful theatre... Um, there's, a, there's a spire with a big bell that you guys ring. Um, there's this real sort of authenticity and when I go there, it feels... I feel like I'm in Hobart. It feels like a uniquely Hobart response and I don't really know why. But, Lee, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a bit about the precinct, how, how it's come about um, and why you think it's... Well, do you agree that it's a, a Hobart yeah, I do, but it's it's only in the pop-up stage at the moment, so I guess our job is to try and hold on to what's there. There's always a push from developers to try and uh, maximise revenue from a site, so, you know, that's a, that's a balance that we have to try and find. Uh, the precinct came about through... We've been running festivals in Hobart for 10, 15 years, and... The success of the festivals in Mona means we're slowly, the city, as the city's being developed, we're running out of venue spaces. So we leased the Odeon Theatre, which is, um, needs a refurbishment, and there's a little car park next to it. And we had our eye on the car park and managed to convince the developer to hand the car park over to us and we would put a roof on it and we found ourselves with a thousand seat or 1,000 capacity venue. Um, and then I guess the precinct's really been born out of that, uh, trying to find ways to hold on to the car park all year round. And um, I guess they need rent, so we needed, we couldn't afford to pay the entire rent just out of the festival budget. So we've now operating a 12 month all year round venue. We've added some kitchens, uh, we've got a nightclub, a small live music venue, the Odeon Theatre, and this outdoor space for about a thousand people. It's right in the heart of the city, and we've added um, as many plants as we can afford. Lots of plants. Um, and that's what surprised me in Hobart, that you could get something that green down there. Often that's uh, something you might see in Brisbane or the more tropical parts of Australia. You go there and it is overwhelmingly green. Um, would you say that, that maybe the fact that it is temporary um, is part of its success, that, that it's, a, it's a space in transition and then because there's no fixed end goal that you've been given the freedom just to explore, like a laboratory or something? Yeah, I think so. I think it, it is imperfect and um, I think humans are imperfect and we like those spaces. I think sometimes they can... Spaces, public spaces can be over-designed, they can be heavy with cement and feel cold and soulless and I think our little space, there's still heritage there, there's some history there and I feel like it has a soul and I think that, um, I think the plants enhance that and so it's a place for people mm. and um, people seem to enjoy gathering in, in spaces like that. So yeah. is, 
is there any comment you can make on, on why you think it's um, unique to Hobart? Like, is it a climatic thing and you've got all this heating and... Or, I mean, for me, there's like, I don't know, there's, a, there's just a feeling about it that's quite a difficult thing to describe. But I, I, like I was talking about in Melbourne, when you're in De Graves, you know you're in Melbourne. But when I was there, I was like, right, I, I'm in Hobart. This is a unique feeling. Did, is there anything you can sort of comment on that or is that just all a bit? Uh, no, it does. <laughs> I don't know. It is kind of unique. I guess we're fortunate that we have the resources we saw a car park, we needed a venue and we managed to get some money to do something kind of interesting without having a fully fledged plan and a long term mm. goal and and the idea wasn't to make as much money as possible, it's really just to get the venue up so that we could use it for the festival. Um, yeah, I don't think yeah. that's a very good answer, but I yeah, yeah I, I don't really I don't really know. Yeah. Did did you do you really get some guy to ring that bell? Is that did I hear that somewhere? You had to get a monk out from yeah, Belgium we, or something? Yeah, I just I really like the bell. We we got it from America. The idea that would be that at six o'clock every night we would ring the bell, and ring that would bell. mean happy hour, and so we would draw the draw the city in. Mm. We haven't really started doing that properly yet, but that is the that is mm. the plan. Yeah. Can we ring the bell? No. Yeah, it's it's a big bell. It's really fun yeah. getting up and ringing it as hard as you can. It it just felt also primal. You go there and there was a big cow on the spit. And there was smoke everywhere and there was a bell being rung and I don't know, I just, um, I just, yeah. It is a little, I mean, Hobart's a little gothic town, so I guess we, we play in that medieval space a little bit without overdoing it. I think um, we also pride ourselves on delivering contemporary culture in, in new spaces, so it's getting that balance right and not yeah. turning it into a, a bad dress-up party yeah. for the locals. Which, which it isn't, yeah. yeah. And... and um, you know, if I can say this, that, that from what I understand, it's um, maybe it's overtaking Salamanca as a tourist destination. And maybe is Salamanca seen as, um, you know, a more 90s offer? And I don't know, is, is the energy pushing into the city now, would you say? Uh, the nightlife energy is pushing back into the city. So we run, we essentially have DJs on... Friday, Saturday nights until midnight. We sometimes get up to 800, 900 mm. young people there in the city dancing. Um, even in the middle of winter, that can happen. Um, Salamanca is a different place. Um, you know, the market's pretty amazing for, for thousands of people. So we're, we're different to that. I think we are challenging Salamanca in the nightlife yep. space. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's kind of what we're mm. about. And, and so... Just a brief comment on on Dark Mofo and this this space is the home of the Dark Mofo Festival. Um, is that really key to it? That Dark Mofo is is about sort of claiming the city for those those weeks of the year. It's like a very urban proposition to claim Hobart. Um, and you you go down there and there's the red crosses everywhere and there's a red neon at the airport and um, it's a really strong story that's being told right from arrival. Uh, again, another, you know, really brilliant move. Yeah, uh, Dark Mofo was about activating winter and, and it is an urban festival. Um, and I think, yeah, we're pretty lucky with the success. Um, the Hanging Garden, it kind of is central. It, we can have 3,000 people at an event 
in the CBD across that site in the middle of winter and we sell those tickets out really quickly. Um, so I guess it is the home and while the festival prides itself on spreading through the city and finding new spaces, I think having a home is important and it's kind of grounding and yeah. it's nice to have um, three stages and lots of infrastructure mm. and lighting and shelter ready yeah. to go. So yeah. it certainly helps with our yeah. budget. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, as we keep moving on, may maybe now is a good time to yeah. keep moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you Thanks, Lee. Um, Sarah, I might um, get hand over to you now. When we spoke, which was very insightful, you um, you mentioned that, like, you know, at the core of things, there's maybe a conflict of values between a Western colonial approach of that very human-centric view on the world, um, which is, you know, putting people's needs first and objects in the centre and also, you know moves very fast and under commercial pressures. And then you've got a more indigenous worldview which puts the ecology at the centre. And really, um, you know, how that also links to our well-being. Um, that fundamentally, if we give to country, we feel better as people. Um, but we're just a part of the whole. So really this kind of conundrum, how do you think that we can maybe create more common ground and and connect properly? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I think that, uh, well, the, the coming back to the point about values is correct. I don't know if anybody's ever actually read Australia's values. I highly encourage you to do it. It's a read. Um, but it's all about people. And it's all about a fair go and equity and all those sorts of things that, you know, I don't know if really happened. I just said the citizenship test and that is true. Yeah. And, um, you know, we live here, uh, here, and everywhere in Australia is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander country. Um, and if you live here, uh, you essentially, unless you've been welcomed, you're, a, you know, you're an uninvited guest, um, but you have chosen to stay. So you're a permanent visitor. Um, and all of us, unless we're traditional owners of the place that we're on, are permanent visitors. And the laws of country talk about uh, caring for country in, this con in the context of, as you mentioned before, um, you know, you care, if you care for country, country will care for you. That's the common line. But if you choose to live here or anywhere in Australia, then you need to follow the rights and values and laws of country, of the country that you're on. Um, so I think the first part is actually going, okay, well, what are they? And working with traditional owners to understand them and bring them to the fore so that we have values that can actually guide our decision-making rather than values that are about people. I mean, I've probably said this a million times before, but like human-centred design has to die. Um, if we're going to have any kind of future, then we actually need to think about more than ourselves. We need to remove ourselves from the centre of that conversation and we need to start with everything that we can know about country and have our values guided by... or have our decisions guided by values that are of this place. And they're of this place for a reason. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, those values have been created from country, in country, within the context of community. So I think it's time we stopped ignoring those and maybe shifted where we start. Um, like the complexity of any built environment project is you start engaging with traditional custodians way too late. The values are already set. They're set by governments and organisations. They're not set by country. And if we, if we actually started from that place of values, the values of country, 
then I think we'd find we'd have much different outcomes and better. That would really require us all to slow down quite a bit, do you think? I mean, just to approach everything differently from the start, like take time and considerations. As an individual or in the as, context well, of built environment? in the contents of our built environment. Yeah. Like, I mean, how long, I, I'd love someone who works in government to tell me this, how long does a project take to go through a feasibility study, a business case, brief development, all those sorts of things? Mm. Years, it's mm. years before it gets to us, the architects. Mm. And that's when all of these things are set. Um, you know, ultimately you go to an architecture practice because their the values or their design aesthetic or whatever it is aligns with the objectives of the project and they've got a proven track record and you know they can deliver. Mm. Um, but it's too late at that point. Mm. And so maybe you seek out an architecture practice which can do something that you don't know how to do. Mm. Um, and that's where the timeline of a project gets quite conflicted. But we need to be talking about it when the project's in treasury, yeah. not when it's on our desk. Yeah, not as an afterthought. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And another thing that I found is an interesting thing that, you know, I guess everyone deals with, like, in their practice is also um, the time that, you know, First Nations people have to consult on every job or to devote themselves to. Um, you know, they flooded with requests for views and opinions. And something interesting you mentioned is this kinship model and... Um, this sense of shared, you know, shared available skills, shared available skills and knowledge. And, you know, I, I'm interested to sort of hear more about, you know, maybe what, how can we achieve more by coming together in this way? Or can you run us through this model a little bit too? Yeah, well, we did a Black Attack talk on it on Monday night yeah. here. So feel yeah. free to go back and look at that recording, um, listen to that recording. But yeah. the crux of it is that um, in our way of operating, our, our people, everybody would have a, a moody, a totem and a, a sort of a kinship relationship to each other. It's mm. an organisational structure for how relationships work within a community, but also a responsibility to country. Mm. Um, and you, instead of all of us trying to become an expert in a field, we would become an expert in knowing how to look after and know that an environment is right for a specific thing. For me, it'd be magpies, for somebody else it'd be kangaroos, you know, whatever it is, mm. water, moon, stars, whatever it might be. Um, and the, the idea of that is that if, if it, everybody in the community is responsible for the things that they are responsible for, the handful of things, mm. then ultimately everything is being looked after and somebody knows in-depth knowledge about something. So when you have to make a decision about reshaping an environment or moving through space or when to leave somewhere so that it can regrow, all these markers that we have about how we're supposed to live sustainably in country, mm. you would know how to do that. And you would, and that's in the sense how you can work with country because country can speak through you because you know it mm. and it's not knowing all of it and I think we all get a little bit scared about this idea of designing with country because it seems so big but I guess to come back to your question if we started to bring in this idea of actually taking responsibility for something that we have affinity with in the context of our work and everybody in that project group or whatever it was um, shared a responsibility for something different then when we came around the, the table as it were to have a yarn about um, our our project, I'd be like, okay, well, but what? How is this going to impact the eels? Mm. And you would be know know how to answer that question. And I'll be like, okay, well, it's going to impact the magpies in this way, and you know, maybe it'll impact not the cows, um, you know, whatever it is from Tasmania. <laughs> the cows. Um, yeah. Sorry, cows trigger. <laughs> Tassie devils, yeah, maybe that's how it'll impact the Tassie devils. Whatever it is, you might have the water rats. 
you might have the water rats. You know, <laughs> we, it doesn't matter. It's not, like, it's not intended to be this glamorous thing. It's not about ego. It's about care. Mm. And I think that is a way that we might be able to move forward and come together because it's about sharing the load. Because ultimately mm. what happens now is that the entire weight of responsibility of speaking for country on behalf of country rests on one or two traditional custodians yeah. that may not even have the cultural rights to speak on behalf of all of the things that they are being asked to speak on behalf of, or it falls on Aboriginal people working in design practices who probably aren't even from that country and mm. don't have any cultural right to speak on behalf of it. Mm. And that is a giant, enormous cultural risk that we need to figure out. Um, so I think part of it is our behaviour and the way that we take responsibility for living here. The other part is a huge amount of systemic change that's got to happen. Yeah, which brings me to systemic change. You do a lot of work in this area or um, you really try and put energy into shifting ideas and concepts and how we do things. Um, what do you think are maybe the crucial points to get to this systemic change? Like what? Yeah, so, I mean, we've, we've changed the uh, definition of what it means to be an architect. So, over the next five to ten years, every architecture school is going to have to start teaching about the health and well-being of country and responsibility to it and caring for country practices mm. and all these sorts of things. Otherwise, yeah. they'll lose their accreditation, so yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Um, but we can only do so much. Mm. And our entire industry is not my line, but I'm going to use it. Planning and architecture are complicit in the colonisation of country, mm. the displacement of people. But the way that we operate in our profession is that we are still colonising place. Mm. Um, we're still moving... Uh, animals and insects out every time we rip up a site to build something new. We're just like ignoring an ecosystem. I think Maddie Miller mentioned this on Monday night at the Black Attack Shigan. We're still destroying. So how do we actually take responsibility and not destroy? Mm. But I think if you want, if you want the widest amount of systemic change um, with the most effective thing, the first thing you need to do is change planning law, and you need to put Aboriginal law in planning law, mm. and then amend the planning acts. Um, and schemes in every um, area that, that happens to align with those values, rights of country, whatever it is mm. the traditional custodians think is important to include there. Secondly, um, local councils need to do... Um, uh, Daniel Cromick, who's a Butterwang Yuan woman, has a, a, an approach to master planning country, so I need to take responsibility to work with traditional custodians to master plan the entire country and have a 300-year view about where, that, where country should be going in that time mm. so that when these projects come up, Site selection can be based on more than the economics of it and actually on the values of that place. Mm. Um, and then I think, so planning, uh, I mean, ignoring architecture for that point in time, then you need to change um, how briefs are written and developed and the process for procurement. I think they're my big things. I could go on for hours though. Tell me more about the process of procurement a little bit, just... So, in, like we were talking about before, people who are responsible for procuring um, buildings before they even get to an architect, if that brief is not written in the context of the place that it's in, uh, if the research hasn't been done about the health and well-being of that country and the project is not, well, the brief doesn't account for how to improve the health and mm. well-being of that country, then that's not going to happen. Um, like, now, now you get social procurement um, and there's a lot of push for creating economic opportunity for community, which is great. Um, but where's the bit about country? Like, that's yeah. never in a brief. Yeah. Um, where's the bit where you're actually investing in that part of uh, responsibility to care for mm -hmm. the place that you're reshaping through that process? Starts at Treasury, 
goes to whoever's responsible for it after that in the context of government, probably Development Victoria, in the context of people that run and procure their own projects and developers, you know, the responsibility lies there. Yeah. We can only do so much once it gets to us. I mean, I imagine even in your own architectural practice, you find your values challenged in the way that things are right now, would you say? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we had a, a, a small brief yarn about mm. this when I was very tired, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but this was probably quite dry. Um, but of course, mm. you know, we're, st we're still, like every project we do in some way causes harm. You can't mm. ignore that. But mm. it, I guess it's, you know, you try and balance it out. And we can only, that's what I mean, we can only go so far with the briefs and the, the systems and the budgets that we're given and the mm. values that are driving the project. So we do as much as we can mm. and you have to take the small wins. But yeah. I guess that's why I spend so much time advocating for systemic change because it's... It, it takes ages. Yeah, it takes yeah. ages and yeah. it can't just sit with the point in time when we get it and it's go, go, go. It's got mm. to sit in that period of time before. How do you keep patient? <laughs> How do I keep patient? Um, yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the, the, the underlying goal for me is to be able to walk around this place and see the markers of country again. Mm. It is that I want my elders to be able to look around their country and see themselves in that environment, and that doesn't mean seeing their human form reflected, it means seeing their kin reflected, mm. seeing the health and well-being of that place. Like, you know, this river, the Birrarung, it has changed its course, it has been dredged, it, um, all of the things that have been done to it have been to mitigate the risk of flooding to property and to people. Mm. Um, and to be able to get boats up and down, like a, you know, really important song line's been blown up, the crossing of the river. So, like, where, obviously the values that have contributed to that happening are not right, but how do we change that and how do we how do we design flooding in, you know? Like, how do we just shift that? You were talking about landscape before. How do we see it as habitat rather than ornament? You know, it's kind of endless, yeah. the, the, the way that we can reframe everything that we do. It's a lot of work to do. It's fun, though. It's fun. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Thank you. Um, well, we yeah. might move across to, to you, um, lucky last. Um, and what, what I wanted to talk to you in particular was um, just wondering if you could tell us a bit about our relationship with, with place um, and just what some of the underlying human instincts are that help make a sense of place and how to feel good in a place um, and perhaps how humans evolved um, with those connections. Just wonder if you could comment on that. I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a great book out there called Your Inner Fish and it talks about how the first sort of animal organisms arrived on Earth about 800 million years ago. And then 600 million years ago, those cellular organisms started to evolve into animals that had a front and a back and a top and a bottom, um, some mechanism to eat, some mechanism to digest food and to defecate, um, and to, uh, sensory organs to make sense of their environment. About two million years ago, quote unquote, humans arrived. We arrived on the scene sort of around about that time. Modern Homo sapiens arrived around or developed around 300,000 years ago. But I guess my point is, we, all of us, our brains are the legacy of that 800 million year journey, which has evolved in place. So, we are of place and our brains have evolved to make sense of 
our environments. Humans, like all other animals and insects, have a strong drive to make sense of our environment and to engage with it. It's for our survival, it's to, it's to thrive, and, and aesthetics and belonging are part of that evolutionary process, right? Sorry, I, I had to take a few notes. Um, and I'm, I'm quoting some of the environmental psychologists from the early 80s, um, Western environmental psychologists. Um, and I'm actually working with First Nations writers around place identity at the moment, interrogating some of the Western research on sense of place. So I'll get to that in a second. But the, Rachel and Stephen Kaplan put out some amazing research in the early 80s talking about how humans, um, as part of our evolutionary quest to, to survive and thrive, we're looking for places that provide some sense of coherence. So we're looking at environments that have some sort of sense of harmony within them. But at the same time, we're looking for a certain amount of complexity, something that will stimulate our interests, something that will keep our brains ticking over. We don't, we don't like environments that are static and boring, but we also don't like environments that are too uh, oppressive and noisy and jangly and um, overstimulating. We also look for places that are legible, that help us find our way um, to help us make sense of where we are um, and I guess to help us understand where our patch is. And I, I imagine all animals do that as part of their association with habitat and territory and defending that. And the fourth one is around mystery. We're looking for environments that stimulate our curiosity and invite us to investigate those environments. And again, it's an adaptive thing. Um, if we end up in an unusual environment, we quickly need to scan it to make sure that it's safe, to look where the, for where the food uh, might be and where the safe places are to shelter. So at an evolutionary level, I think that that's how our brains are hardwired. Um, and I imagine that in the course of Western society taking over what is seen as being human, somewhere, somewhere along the line we've forgotten that we are off place. Yeah. Um, still going? Okay. Um, <laughs> Keep going. So, um, in my field, community psychology, we, we work very closely with uh, the environmental psychology world, but also um, with a whole diversity of, of scholars and thinkers, uh, and I'm proud to say First Nations scholars as well. But the, the notion of sense of place, it's used... It's used uh, with a certain amount of abandonment to do everything from selling package holidays uh, in an unspoiled place where we go and then spoil it, or it's used to sell um, tracked housing in some urban sprawl development where residents are promised a sense of place, but typically in Australia, we, they then discover that they've moved into a place where all of the shops and houses and schools and museums and parks and train stations had an asterisk next to them that said subject to demand or subject to sufficient population uh, and no promises, thank you very much. So the whole notion of sense of place, it's, um, so it's a term that's overused and it's often underdefined. And I think one of the things that uh, the environmental psychology world has been doing over the last 20, 30, 40 years is to unpack that. So. Sense of place includes notions of place attachment, this feeling of belonging to place, uh, 
um, this notion of place identity, where people define themselves to the place they live in, and I'm gonna come back to that in a second. This notion of place dependence. Um, we build our relationships to place because we are, over time, we're able to get the things we need from that place. Um, it provides us with opportunities for food, shelter, housing, kinship, uh, caring for relatives, caring for places, uh, and we become dependent on that. And it might change throughout our lives. Um, and then, then there's this notion of just how we perceive places, which are very sort of cognitive and the most objective, but the really unconscious ones that are the very subjective and emotional are this notion of identity and attachment. Um, and it's often when those things are challenged by an unplanned and unforeseen event, and usually an unwanted event for, for, for modern life, that we are actually realising that our sense of who we are is being challenged at a very deep existential level. The thing I wanted to make, I say about place identity is that the Western model views people saying, I, this place is about me, and if I, I hope I do this justice, but a First Nations perspective, my understanding is it's not, it's not this place belongs to me, it's I belong to this. Um, and some scholars in environmental psychology argue that places have their own identity regardless of whether or not humans perceive them. It's going very deep into an almost an animistic sense of, of the world and I suggest that possibly a First Nations worldview, which is one that our species has had up until the last few hundred years, is, is that we acknowledge and pay tribute to the special characteristics of place that have existed way before we turned up on the scene. So when we talk about sense of place, we're actually talking about the interplay of all of those things, attachment, identity, um, dependence, belonging, and also this notion of psychological sense of community, which is the inter intersection of, or interaction between places and the people that live and dwell within them. Um, so I guess my personal quest is for this notion of sense of place to actually be interrogated. And if, if developers are promising sense of place, they need to define how it is they're gonna create it and they need to be held accountable. Why is it we can take a fridge back if it breaks down, but we can't, we have no recourse to say to a developer, but I was promised that cute little blonde girl blowing the dandelion on the billboard promised me a school and a library and a train station. Why is it that we're not, we're told that, oh, Sorry, that was just that was just the blurb on the poster. On that, I mean, can you give us some examples of um, I don't know some concrete examples of what what you might how you might see that manifest in like an example in a in a city or a precinct? Like what? Um... Well, it's interesting living in a colonial society. I mean. A lot of Australians, white Australians, I remember a conversation I had with some yuppie who said that they were flying off to Tuscany for their 25th summer holiday and, and they flew over everything in Australia. They, they said, oh, there's no... Where, ha, their quest was to go and find culture. And I said, well, there's, there's 100,000 years of it here if you really want to go and find it. 
Um, but I think colonial society, we want to create that sense of attachment and belonging and identity really quickly. Federation Square is master planned. It's built in, it plops on, there is obviously some scoping and engagement. But the, Europe, the, the, the Australians that go on holiday in, in Barcelona hang out in a square that's evolved organically over time, over hundreds of years. And I think our challenge in a colonial society is to, uh, and I love what you were saying, Lee, because it's actually about allowing a place to evolve without trying to tick every single box and uh, create and shape every single place so that every potential behavioural outcome is is pre-designed. Um, so I think the challenge is to, is to allow places to evolve organically and not overpack them with uh, what I've heard called plaza plop, you know, the sort of abstract art pieces and um, things that... And of, oftentimes, you know, when, when Apple were nearly about to build their retail premises at Federation Square, and also when the glass church box was cancelled by the incoming government. I mean, even the artistic vision for that was already compromised by um, ideological and commercial interests. So even when we build something that's quite magnificent, the, 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 the current worldview is that it's very vulnerable to um, a commercial enterprise wanting to come in and uh, sort of almost harvest or strip mine the, the social capital and the the semiotics and the, the sense of belonging that that place has. They want to they want to monetize it, and I don't know. That's not how things have been done traditionally. The, the only example I was going to raise was um, I was at the the Nick Cave gig recently at, at Hanging Rock. Um, apologies, I, I don't know the indigenous term of Hanging Rock, um, but it was an incredibly powerful experience. It was quite spiritual, you know, with the rock and with Nick. Um, it was like there was this sort of um, collective switch had been turned on and it became quite tribal. Um, I don't know. It, what I think... I, I'm no sort of psychologist, but what I'm interested in is this... And I've heard it referred to as sort of um, system one and system two or the rider on the elephant. And the elephant is our... It's where it's, it's actually what's driving, driving us. It's our passions and our emotions... Um, and the rider is just trying to steer the elephant. Um, and I think that when I was at that Nick, Nick Cave gig, my elephant was, um, you know, <laughs> being switched, switched on. But is that... You talk about that sort of... Um, that, is, is that sort of correct, that separation of the two? Or what, like, what is that sort of intuition? Like, where is that? Um, it's possibly your 600-million-year-old brain... Uh, operating at that very subliminal level and you're feeling a kinship or a sense of synergy with that place. Mm. I mean, at the base of Hanging Rock somewhere, and I don't need to know where it is, but there is an ancient obsidian mine where First Nations people traded obsidian as a major part of the sharing economy across the Australian eastern seaboard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a place where thousands of people have walked through that land mm over thousands of years. Yeah. Um, how could you not feel something? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like I <clears throat> initially came across you, Lee, um, through an article I, I read in the conversation about l the psychology of loss of place. And you spoke about 
you know, when, you, when we demolish socially significant places, we demolish a part of ourselves. And that really resonated with me and it really, I don't know, inspired a lot of maybe also this conversation. But I, it also really reminded me of some of Jane Jacobs' ideas and, and we really sort of lean on her in our practice and, and her concepts. But, you know, she really urged urban planners, like, you know, in the midst of modernism and, and you know, modernity, she just, she urged them to respect community, to, you know, not destroy neighbourhoods, not destroy socially significant places and divide neighbourhoods, like, you know, to, to respect that. And it's nearly, like, that's really become incredibly relevant now in the way that, you know, we, we look at place. Why does everything need to be pretty in order yeah. to be saved in this country? Yeah. And who decides what's pretty or not? Or um, what's meaningful. That, that article yeah. that I wrote was in relation to uh, the, <clears throat> the John Curtin Hotel. But mm. the place that I was referring to for my own lived experience was the Greyhound Hotel, which was at the gateway to my neighbourhood. Mm. It was the place that signified to me on the number three tram that I'd got home. Mm. And it was this brilliant old Art Deco pub that had been... Well, actually, it started off as a Victorian building, but it had an Art Deco exoskeleton built around it in the 20s. But because, of it, because it wasn't considered to be intact by the local heritage folks at the council, it wasn't mm. protected. And so somehow we've got this thing that a place has to be completely intact from a particular architectural era, mm. um, and it has to be, it has to be cute... Um, otherwise, we we can't save it. When that building was demolished, people would go were going to salvage bricks because they had lived big parts of their lives there. It was a third place. It was mm. where we went to to create community. Mm. I I still for many years I couldn't go past that gaping hole that's still there. Mm. Um, it was too painful. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. It's um something that I actually thought of also to to raise with. Dan and Lee, um, just, you know, you both sort of talk a little bit about messiness um, and how that creates a sense of belonging, creativity, spontaneity in, in both in the way that you approach precincts. Like, do you think we just need to be getting a bit more creative with the way we transform what we have or what we add on instead of, you know, demolishing and rebuilding? Like, is that kind of at the core of a lot of... Well, interesting stuff. I do. Well, I was just yeah. thinking about your Hanging Gardens project and you're just working with infrastructure mm -hmm. that's there with the need that you know that you have. And that, to me, makes perfect sense rather than demolishing, starting over, not really knowing what the need is and then creating something that, who knows if that's what this place needs. Yeah, um, yeah I do think a lot of sites are over-designed. Yeah. I'm I'm a kind of I'm a graphic designer by trade, and I'm kind of a minimalist. When the gardeners first started bringing in old rusty gates and tins and rusty buckets into the garden, I was actually a little horrified. Mm. <laughs> they actually brought in a lot of character, and it's turned out to be the best bit. So now we've got vines growing over these old gates, and they look like they've been there for a long time. So sometimes. It's good just to let things go mm. um, and evolve and change them if they're not working. Um, mm. But yeah, trying to have it all planned out and mapped out from the beginning does create kind of soulless environments at times, mm. not, not always. But Yeah, I found that, like I'm from Germany originally and I feel the best places there 
are just sort of crates on the beach sort of vibes, you know, like it's just, that's where everyone has the most fun. And I actually think it also sort of resonates with our inner child or something. You know, it's sort of when we were young, we had fun and we didn't have much money and everything was just like what we made it. And there's something about that, you know, things get boring when they too well, I think glossy. It, like, well, I think so. There's no yeah. such thing as a tidy forest or a tidy ocean. No. So why would we want a tidy house or a tidy place? It just, it's not yeah. natural. Yeah. Do you actually, aside from your own, do you have like precincts in the world or places that you personally have observed where you're like, they do this so well, this is amazing. Like places that have inspired you or the way you look at things a little bit or... I quite like how Rome, how the Italians use public space. Mm. Um, been in some public squares in Spain and Madrid that do it really well. You know, public spaces are shared spaces. They're great places to share food and wine. Um, mm. Very different than privately owned, commercially driven spaces. Um, they come to mind, but there are many, you know. I think Salamanca does it well in Hobart yeah. and probably... The NGV, Fed Square, do it less well. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just my view. No, well, it's good. It's, what about you? Uh, uh, Athens, actually, is yeah, a place no, that I keeps cannot. us alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because it's almost the, the opposite of the public space because public space in Athens is not cared for or looked after. But obviously Athens is a city that is in ruin, right? Mm. There are just buildings that are boarded up in... in so far gone that it'd be really hard to salvage them. Mm. But what you do see is in the private spaces, especially on ground level, there's opportunities for different kind of activities to happen, uh, which I which I love. So you can walk along the street and you can see into the first level on the on the street. And normally you don't get to get to see whatever it is, like an artist painting something or a kid's martial arts studio mm. or just little small community things that are happening that usually yeah. get hidden and pushed to the back of buildings and pushed to the outside of suburbs because of the economics of it. Mm. But in Athens, it's there for you to kind of see. So the city reveals itself in this really real way, which yeah, it's like I an, love. an openness yeah. that's like right in your face kind of. That. Yeah. But there's also like an energy and a feeling that exudes that's really like... You, you can't miss that, you mm. know, like I find Berlin has elements of that where, yeah. you know, I feel often about that with, with art in Berlin. It's, it's you know, in the, it's in the street, in your face. It's not pretty. You don't go in a gallery. It's just there and it constantly changes and, yeah. I was just wondering, Sarah, if you, you have a, a place where your connection to place is strongest. Uh, I got asked this on the radio on Sunday mm. uh, and I couldn't answer it properly. Uh, no. Um... I think that I have, well, the way I answered the question is that there are elements of place that I find uh, I can connect to and not others. Um, I think in large part that's probably because I didn't grow up on my country um, and I haven't spent much time on my own country because it's pretty much privately held and the only place you can really go is Batman's Cottage, who was the bounty hunter who killed lots of my ancestors before he came here and tried to do a treaty with uh, people here and then did un other unspeakable things. Um, but the, I guess, for me, I connect to the smell of salt or the taste of salt in the air or being amongst really tall trees or hearing a magpie or, you know, the, there are aspects of 
place that I can that I can see myself connected to because of my understanding of the culture that I come from. Um, I mean, I just wanted to, if I can, if you don't mind, mm. like you were talking about loss of place and, um, you know, the building getting taken down and that being a part where you saw yourself in. And I just, mm. I don't want to bring the mood down, but I do want to say, like, imagine that for an entire Aboriginal, of all of Australia, all of the Aboriginal groups, every single bit of the landscape where architectural identity and building styles and farming practices and animals and um, plant species were all imported from somewhere else and everything that you not only felt a connection to but were responsible for has changed. Mm. It's like, I've got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, it's, yeah, it's a really, yeah, great point. Um, Ian, did you want to have a go? Are you, no, wasn't sure if you're all... Um, about places that mean something for me or where I feel I belong. Um, I've lived in lots of different places, so I guess there are significant places around the world where I've had significant moments or significant things have happened to me. Um, I lived in the Northern Territory for a while and um, I feel like that whole place dragged me up there to do some deep learning like it there is a very significant places there um i moved to melbourne to do my phd and i ended up living in balaclava and that place is very deeply enmeshed in who i am i have a really deep love for that area and the and the raffish people that live there um, um my partner and i were able to get a place in kyneton several years ago and there are really important elements there that really uh, central victoria is just a beautiful part of the world so for me it's about the intersection with my own biography and the particular characteristics of a place um, yeah, thank you thank you i just want to acknowledge your comment sarah about where yeah when the loss of a place is is so systemic and uh, our western language doesn't even have a word for that the, there's a word in Spanish, destierro, which is around the trauma of being forcibly removed from place. But our Western culture doesn't even have those words. Um, but for me, um, the key to the solution for me is is through reconciliation. And I think the, the, the challenge and the opportunity right now for placemaking is the weather that we're experiencing, climate change, the Anthropocene, I don't think this weather is normal, <laughs> um, uh, but I think through through a, through a, a spirit of reconciliation with place and traditional custodians, the key to the solution is around rebuilding places from that First Nations um, philosophy or cosmology that you were referring to. Um, traditional owners have already experienced at least one significant climate change event in this on this continent um, 10,000 years ago um, so that knowledge is there um, so that I guess what I wanted to say was I'm despite um, the gravitas of what we're talking about I think the 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 key to actually doing something meaningful is everything that you've just said um, is about rebuilding and strengthening places using traditional owner wisdom and traditional owner, traditional plants. Um, 
the, the discussion we had about green everything, um, all of these modern houses have got plants that don't have flowers on them because some guy with a whippersnipper and a leaf blower doesn't have to come and <laughs> That's right. half destroy them. I want, I want to be around places that have got fragrance and colour and provide shade and um, soften the, the noise. And, um, they are, they are need more care. Yes. What I, um, I was just thinking, Sarah, um, that we, we've, we've done some work with Chelsea Marshall, who's an Indigenous ecologist, um, and she put forward this question, which I love, and sort of, it's in my brain, and I think about it whenever we start working on a new place, is what's working for life in this place? And I think that's just really fundamental. If you stop and think about that, and we've done that at the Dairy Road site, um, you know, what is working for life in this place? And obviously water is a, a huge thing, um, but you could do that on so many deeper levels uh, as you've been speaking about. But I love that as a starting question, actually. Did you say what is working for life? What is working for life in okay. this place? I think it's quite yeah, I love that deep. Too. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I'm just conscious of time yeah, yeah. and of the cold. Um, we, we did want to sort of uh, briefly sort of um, hand it over to the crowd and see if there was any questions that, that anyone wanted to ask our panel members. Um, so if there is anyone, let us know and we'll bring a microphone ac across to you. Um, and don't be shy, please. And, and if no one puts up their hand, for the, the, per the first person that does ask a question will receive a prize. <laughs> And I'm, I'm being serious. As long as they're not from six degrees, the, the prize would be really boring. <laughs> Hi, I just had a short one for you, Dan. The book that you referenced at the start, what was that? Oh, so this is, um, it came, we did a symposium, which I was saying, around l landscape in the built realm. And... Um, this book is a, a distillation of those ideas that came out of that symposium. So really thinking about principles that we could apply when thinking about our built environment and then expanded thoughts and commissioned essays uh, around the notion of putting landscape first. Yep. Thanks. And the prize you will win is a book about six degrees. So <laughs> it's coming your way. I can also give this book. <laughs> Two books. Um, no one else? I, I, Could I just... Ian. Um, one thing I meant to say was, has anyone heard of this concept of solastalgia? It's, it's, um, it's something that is considered to be happening right now and it's the grief that non-Indigenous people are feeling for widespread loss of place because of climate change. I have a feeling that colonial society is, is, is now undergoing that widespread systemic grief and loss and distress because of the loss of places that's happening everywhere because of climate change, either running out of water, places burning down, the terrible bushfires we've seen, the flooding. Um, the, there's, a, there's a significant amount of anxiety and, and distress everywhere and I can only think that it's possibly an echo of what First Nations peoples have been through. Um, 
And I just wanted to flag that, because in terms of placemaking and uh, place attachment, the things we're talking about tonight, it's actually very important. Uh, it's what we need to strengthen as we try to adapt to the, the global impacts of climate change. What was the word? Solastalgia. It's a bit corny. I think it's something to do with solace, nostalgia. Um, it's, there's some really good articles on it. Um, I have come across this, but yeah. Do we have any other questions? Have you thought of something while we were... No? I need a blanket. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, we all do, I think. But yeah. Should we... Um... Well, I, th I think on that note, um, you know, that's a really beautiful um, commentary at the end there. Um, we thought maybe one way to sort of um, end the night was if panel members, um, perhaps if they had one lesson or word of advice that they could um, give to the audience um, about place, belonging and wellbeing and um, what, that, what that final parting word would be. We were going to warn you, but then we didn't. You didn't. I'm going to say listen. Listen. Mm. Mm. Nice. Anyone else? Fireplace would be nice. Fireplace. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all, all outdoor areas. <laughs> um, always remember that humans aren't the only species or only living thing that exists within the spaces that you're operating and living and changing. And maybe the Western preoccupation could be less about who am I, but more about where am I. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. That was um, really, really insightful. And, yeah. Um, and thank you all for still being here while it's freezing cold. I think we should all get a glass of wine. Um, thank you for coming. It's um, been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, guys, for being here tonight. Thanks for our panel members. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.